The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think it's probably fair to say that the whole path is a bringing together of um, maybe two trainings. One is the different skillful means or trainings, practices that allow the mind, allow the heart to be sensitive, to feel, to see, to be touched. And then the other set of practices or skillful means, really sometimes called pointing out instructions like, how to understand what the heart is sensitive to. Because, of course, we all know we're already to some degree sensitive and we may not understand what we're feeling, you know, the way that we understand it or the way that we interpret the feeling, the experience, may not be very helpful. I got a card, I forget from whom, And it says, I used to live each day as if it were my last. But people grew tired of me screaming, I'm going to die, I'm going to (laughs) die. And so we can be, we could cultivate the sensitivity, the awareness of death. waiting for the kicker. (laughs) So so we could cultivate the awareness of death. But if we don't get a pointing out instruction, we're going to, as we're more and more aware of it, we're going to get depressed. It's going to feel heavy, right? Oh, yeah, I'm starting to notice death everywhere. Starting to notice aging. And it's like we, people who read the obituaries are looking always interested in the next tragedy to confirm the sort of growing conviction that, you know, life is bad because there's death, because we can't keep it or can't hold it. So this is true not just in terms of the teachings on impermanence, but the whole dharma, the this way of being, this way of practicing that the Buddha set in motion, it really has these two pieces of how to become a more sensitive, more exposed, right? Because it's that exposure that makes our waking up, the deepening of understanding, the deepening of wisdom authentic because it's grounded in that exposure, that connection with the way it is. But we're just going to replicate our way of understanding unless we get new information. Sometimes I think, you know, uh, in some ways I feel lucky that we ended up with the name of the place, Common Ground, but every once, I, I like it and I think it makes sense in a lot of ways, but every once in a while I, I think it can be confusing too. Like, 
actually it would have been more accurate to call the place common groundlessness. <laughs> it just doesn't it just doesn't sound as good. But it's actually more true. Or you could say the ground, the common ground we wake up to is groundless. Groundlessness is the letting go, is the not the non attachment. This is a passage from the Buddha. O practitioners, maybe you can possess that possession, the possession that is permanent, stable, eternal, not of the nature to become other than it is, that would stay just like it is for an eternity. Do any of you see such a possession? And then the monks, nuns, lay people, whoever it was that were listening, said, indeed not, sir. And the Buddha says, exactly, neither do I. Another passage from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, better to live one day seeing the rise and fall of things than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the rise and fall of things. I've often felt in my practice um, uh, just especially as uh, you know in the last 10 or so years, 15 years of practice, this real dependency for the continuation of practice to be more honest about what my heart, what my mind doesn't want to see, doesn't want to acknowledge. So real, like needing life, the messiness of life, the imperfection of life, the impermanence of life. And the reason is, what I've really noticed is that as, you know, to allow insight to deepen, to be become more stable, more clear, more integrated, the heart needs to be exposed to Dhamma the way it is. And we have a lot of defenses just sort of built into the conditioned mind to, you know, see things the way we're used to seeing them instead of seeing things the way they are. So it's like when we, just through the course of our life, when we bump into or things arise in our life that are revealing of some of these underlying, you know, expressions of life, like that things change, that things are uncertain, that things are not dependable, or that things are unsatisfactory, or that things are impersonal. Then we want to take as a practitioner, as somebody, a sincere, devoted, someone who's fallen in love with the practice, as I mentioned the first day, then we sort of leap up at that. Like, oh, this is a, I need to sit down with this. You know, we don't turn the other way when we see a, 
dead squirrel on the side of the road. We're curious about that revulsion that arises sometimes when we're close to uh, smashed animals, another being that has been you know, crushed by something, hit by a car or something, and looks gruesome. And there's that sort of very strong impulse, like, don't look at that. And then the, the practitioner in us says, this is an opportunity. And it's not about being morbid. It's like challenging, um, or maybe not so much challenging, but just understanding that awakening, this process of insight, it depends, like there's a cause for it. It isn't like we can go buy it. There's a natural process that supports awakening. And it's when the heart turns toward what it hasn't yet turned toward, what it's been in the habit of denying or projecting something on it, we actually need to see what we haven't, what the mind or heart hasn't clearly, intimately seen or felt. Because that's what awakening is. Awakening, the wisdom of awakening, is the wisdom that knows how to be intimate. And we're already able to be intimate with what we're able to be intimate with. The question is, what aren't we able to be intimate with? Like death, like loss, or any number of things. It'd be nice. I mean, you can do that tonight. You've got your PJs on and you're sitting in your bed and still have energy. You can make a list of the places in life, the possibilities in life where the mind still screams, no, that's not okay. Doesn't mean that we're supposed to like it. You know, like all those terrible things or disgusting things or... But just having a wise relationship like that might happen when the conditions are right, that will happen. And if that were to happen, the aspiration is to be free, no matter what happens. I mean, that's my aspiration. I want to be at ease. I want to be free. I want to relate and engage in a way that's helpful for myself and others. I definitely don't want to plant more seeds for my delusion and the delusion of others. You know, it seems like there's enough. So when we have that list of places, fears, and of course we won't be able to name all of them, Then, we, then it's like we have that resolve. So when they do show up, 
there will be a counterweight to the part of the mind that's saying, don't look at that, run, hide, project something onto that, you know, decorate it with some story that makes it palatable, but no longer real, no longer actually what's happening because we've spun a tail. Another passage from the Buddha. Just as a farmer working after the rains with a great plow bursts asunder the spreading roots as they plow, just as a reed cutter when cutting reeds seizes them by the stem, shakes them around, rips them out and casts them aside, just just as after the rains when the sky clears of the retreating rain clouds and the sun rises up into the sky, driving away all darkness from the heavens and illuminates, warms, and shines forth, so also the perception of impermanence when developed in practice shatters all craving for the sense realm, shatters all craving for the form realm, shatters all craving for any existence, any becoming, shatters all ignorance and uproots selfish conceits. So that's, you know, in a, in a sense, that's the promise, the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. Basically, when the heart, when the mind, the sensitive mind, the devoted, the mind that's devoted to checking out the instructions from the Buddha, when that mind turns toward the reality of impermanence, whatever the particular expression might be, then you know, as the passage says, craving for sense pleasure, craving for anything whatsoever is destroyed. So that's just sort of an interesting thing to check out. Like when, even in hindsight now, when we think about significant events, when the perception of impermanence, the perception of change, Really, anicca, the Pali word, uh, maybe is better translated as not dependable. Inconstant, not dependable, unreliable, insubstantial. So when we have had those kinds of experiences and they arose in a way that we, our defenses were slow, right? So we we were really exposed to the underlying truth before we could decorate it or turn away from it or distract ourselves. Then what was for you in that experience? What was the lawful aftertaste of that exposure to impermanence? Was it that equanimity, the did the force of craving lose some steam in your heart? That would be really good. That's why we have Dharma friends, you know, where we can say, have a deep conversation with a friend who, you know, has gone through a significant loss of maybe a good friend dies or parent dies or something like that. And they feel disoriented after that as if, 
the things that used to motivate them, like renovating the kitchen or you know whatever it might be, buying a cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior. But it's like, it's not that it wouldn't be pleasant, but the craving, the dependency on that has been diminished. Given that people are born and die, really letting that in, really living in alignment with that, it really changes our relationship to so much of what fills our lives as human beings. What exactly is the point? I mean, as nice as it would be now, especially to imagine going someplace warm with tropical breezes and warm salt water and You know, there, it's just interesting when you know very clearly that it will last and then I'll fly home. It kind of takes the charm away from the imagining whatever it is. Whether we're imagining the perfect relationship, the perfect vacation, getting the body into perfect shape, perfect health, But when we really, when that perception and that um, alignment with impermanence, that sort of being more honest with ourselves about just the underlying nature of things, so the the question is, what replaces that? You know, what has been so enlivening for us is that hope, you know, creating a life that has meaning, creating a life that is interesting and pleasant and fulfilling, where we belong, where we've contributed in some way. But, you know, even with the Dharma, even with the Buddhist teachings, one of the things you find several places in the discourse is, is the Buddha's acknowledgement that these teachings will last for a while and then will be forgotten. And in the Buddhist cosmology, there's this idea, you know, or legend or whatever, you know, that there have been many Buddhas, and depending on the particular qualities of that Buddha, that awakened person that was you know, able to articulate their awakening, depending on their particular attributes and of their articulation, the teachings lasted for a certain length of time and then eventually were forgotten. And then there's a long time where nobody knew to look closely at experience and to, on purpose, tune in to the underlying qualities of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and the impersonal nature because it leads this awakening. There's sort of the dark time where people don't know about it. And then another person wakes up and has the personality to articulate their awakening. And then those teachings last for a while and then are forgotten. So it's really poignant to for the Buddha to say that even about, you know, 
this particular practice. So when all of those dreams, when we're, we use our life as it is, you know, the underlying, impermanent, insubstantial, unreliable, uncertain, not dependable part of life, when we on purpose keep bringing it into view, we get the pointing out instructions, we've developed the sensitivity, and then because we have the pointing out instructions and we have the sensitivity, bringing them together, the pointing out instructions are saying, be aware of the present moment, and in particular, notice the impermanent nature. Notice the undependable, not dependable, uncertain nature, the unsatisfactory nature. Because when you do that, something will happen. I think as a treat tonight, Wynn was going to share the 33 synonyms of Nibbana. Right? Because there's this peace. The peace of the heart not expecting the world to deliver something or life or experience to deliver something it can't deliver. There's another passage. See how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There is nothing you need to hold on to and there is nothing you need to push away. And the thing is, it really makes us such better people the more we align with impermanence. I mean, in sort of more common language, we say it really breaks our heart wide open or tenderizes our heart. Thich Nhat Hanh says something that's, I think, in the Dhammapada, so it's an ancient passage from the Buddha probably or someone around the time of the Buddha. But the way Thich Nhat Hanh says it is, you know, when you're having an argument with somebody, having a difficult time with somebody, just visualize them 300 years from now. <laughs> Dust, right? Because it's really hard when, when we're attuned that everybody in this room or the difficult people in our life, the politician that pushes our buttons or the person at work that pushes our buttons or whatever, when we realize that they will, they will go through the dying process and probably, likely at least, it will be difficult for them. And then, at least in terms of this life, they'll be gone. What changes things? You know, anger needs a real target. Self-righteousness needs a real target. And when we realize that things come and go, it sort of takes the target away. Same thing with craving. Craving needs a real target. It's like getting a new iPhone. If I really tune in to three years max, it's relevant. You know, or now, you know, the new report, I don't know, maybe it came out while you were on retreat, but... About, th- I, I, I don't know if it's actually true, but there were some reports that they've been strategically slowing down the batteries or the operating speed of the older iPhones so people would be more likely to buy new ones. But in any case, 
if we really remember that, it takes the, it, it undermines the craving when we realize that a new house needs to be maintained. You know, even when we fix something up, it starts to fall apart. And even before it starts to fall apart, it needs to be dusted, needs to be vacuumed, things need to be put away. We don't get done. Nothing we crave. But we always imagine that the craving and getting, gratifying the craving, will lead to some definitive, ah. And there is enough of that. There actually is some flavor of that gratification, but it's pretty ephemeral. It doesn't last very long. I mentioned Sharon Salzberg's book um, that I think is a a real gem, one of her earlier ones, A Heart as Wide a heart as wide as the world. And this is a chapter in that book called Changing Seasons. And she tells a story about a friend of hers, I think from the West Coast, coming to visit her in New England at IMS, Massachusetts. And it was during the fall. And, you know, the New England falls are quite beautiful. And uh, so there she was, you know, it was a couple weeks from the visit. And she was really tracking the colors and really wanted her friends to see the colors at their peak, you know. And just that craving, like, you know how that is. When we, we really want something to be just right. And it's almost like this energetic, like, slow down, slow down. And then she got an email or a call or whatever that her friend couldn't come. And she remembered distinctly her mind going, okay, you can just do what you want now. <laughs> You know, it's like I don't. I'm not attached to the arc of the colors. You can just do whatever you want. And she goes on. She talks about impermanence in this chapter. Of course, it's ludicrous to try to keep leaves from falling from trees. But look at how much of our life is spent trying to do the same thing in other ways. How often we try to keep things from changing. Yet impermanence is the very fabric of our lives. It's not just that our lives are always changing. Our lives are made up of change. When we look at the natural world, we see so clearly that seasons come and go. Likewise, we can see that people come and go in our lives. We know that we have possessions, that they break and are are given away, or we no longer care for them or we might not notice and appreciate them anymore. We know that we feel one way in the morning, another way in the afternoon, and perhaps yet another way at night, and we know that at the end of our lives we die. The practice of meditation makes us especially sensitive to how our perceptions themselves are constantly changing. There is a thought, and then it's gone. A sound arises and passes away. Smells and tastes and touch sensations come and go. Sights come into existence and vanish. Through meditation we come to know not just poetically or lyrically, but actually that we are dying and being reborn in every moment. And this is not 
like Sharon says, it's not something to get intellectually. It's something that we can actually see. To really see that this moment of mind is not the previous moment. That has gone. It's ceased. And this moment, although conditioned by the past moments, bearing some relationship to the past past moments, is actually, in a very real sense, a different reality, a different moment, moment by moment. Again, this isn't something to believe. It's something to get interested in. Somebody in the small group earlier today just talked about noticing that in terms of the visual field. Like after the blank and the eyes open, just that intuitive recognition that what is being seen is not what was seen the moment before. And again, it always sounds a little funny to say that, like, well, yeah, or so what? But when that perception actually arises in the mind, it really changes how the mind understands what this is. We can't really, it's hard for us to comprehend. It's like they always say, you know, the fish, it's really hard for a fish to comprehend water. It's really hard for us to comprehend how much of uh, the solidity, the permanence, the groundedness we feel is a construction. It's, it, it's an appearance and that the changing process nature is just waiting to express or reveal itself to eyes that aren't a mind that's not attached, not obsessively orienting, projecting, reconstructing solidity. The solidity of me, the permanent me who's having this experience. My sense of the permanent you, the same person, you know, that I met in whatever that was, 1989, you know. Haven't changed a bit. It's one of the infuriating things of reading Buddhist books is uh, whether you're reading the ancient texts or just the books of contemporary Buddhist teachers, but it's somewhere you know, in the books the person is going to be describing their awakening, their insight into the rising and falling of phenomena. Right? It's something that is pretty... Common and the something the Buddha emphasizes over and over again this insight into impermanence and how transforming it is. This is uh, Gil Fronstall. I left a few of these articles out. Maybe some of you read in the second page of it. He's just talking in a more ordinary way about when we look at pain, which is quite common for us meditators. You know where we have pain and the initial diluted impression is that pain is solid it's happening to me it's like real you know and i look at it you know knee pain back pain 
butt pain, heart pain. It could be emotional. It could be physical sensations. It doesn't really matter. We look at it, you know, like with this pointing out instructions, you know. Is it really permanent? We go, no, it's solid. It's, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's getting worse. <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel like big deal if it's like changing a little bit. It still bothers me. Because we're still, the mind is still dominated with the constructs of solidity. The me feeling unpleasant sensations and the not liking, those things go unquestioned. They are unquestionably true, meaning the appearance of the me and the appearance of the unpleasantness and the appearance of the not liking the unpleasantness are seen as like, okay, that's what that is. I've seen it. That's just the not... And we don't see... We just see the appearance. We don't see sort of behind the veil or what else is there. So this is Gil writing a little bit about opening to physical pain. Perhaps you've had the, an opportunity to bring mindfulness to strong physical experience such as pain. We tend to see pain through our ideas about it. With very strong mindfulness, however, we find that we can't pinpoint pain. As soon as we think we've located the pain, it flashes out of the existence and reappears a millimeter to the side. It becomes a dance of sparking sensations located in no particular place. Pain that seems solid is actually in constant flux. In this deeper experience of impermanence, we realize that it doesn't make sense to hold on to anything, even temporarily. There's nothing that we can hold on to because everything simply flashes in and out of existence. We also realize that our changing, or I'm sorry, we also realize that our clinging and resistance have very little to do with the experience themselves, the experience itself. We mostly cling to ideas and concepts, not things or experiences in and of themselves. For example, we don't cling to money, but to the ideas of what money means for us. We may not resist aging as much as we resist letting go of cherished concepts of ourselves and our bodies. One of our most ingrained attachments is to self, self self-image and self-identity. In the deeper experience of mindfulness, we see that the ideas of self is a form of clinging to concepts. Nothing in our direct experience can qualify as a self to hold on to. As we see impermanence clearly, we see that there is nothing real that we can actually cling to. Our deep-seated tendency to grasp is challenged and so may begin to relax. We see that our experiences don't correspond to our fixed categories, ideas, or images. We realize that reality is more fluid than any of our ideas about it. Now, you get a sense that this kind of practice takes a lot of stability of awareness. That's what gives us the sensitivity. It's the stable awareness. 
so stable, it's not even so much trying to see impermanence. There's really no agenda. It's just stable, clear, kind presence, kind present moment awareness, mindful awareness. And that stability of mind is capable of seeing things as they are. So if pain is the predominant experience, it will see it in terms of pain. If joy is the predominant experience, it will see the ephemeral nature of joy. Some of you have had really beautiful sets, right? Maybe all of you in moments have had a beautiful set. The idea that I'm having a good set, that may seem really solid, right? Because that's one of those constructions. Concepts have the appearance of being solid because the mind can repeat them in a way that creates an appearance of solidity. But joy itself, it's very interesting when your mind is very quiet, very light, very joyful, or very easeful, or very still, whatever the particular flavor of that concentrated mind might be. It's very interesting how it's very clearly wholesome, very clearly pleasant, but it can't be located. Like if you, if you go looking for the joy, for the ease, for the stillness, there's nothing there. Nothing lasts. And this is what Gil is saying in terms of difficult experience. I've, I've gotten to this place sometimes because I've always had a lot of physical discomfort in meditation maybe because I was a serious runner for a lot of my teenage and early 20s years. Without, and back then, the coaches didn't know about stretching. <laughs> so anyway, that's another story. And uh, so I've always had a lot of pain. And lately, you know, I'll, I'll still have a lot of pain in my body. But it, and so I'll, have, I'll, I'll catch myself sometimes having this sort of general idea that there's a lot of pain in my body, you know. And then it would be, it sort of, <laughs> you would think after 35 years, every once in a while, well, let's look, you know. And it's like, <laughs> and so it's because it's so obvious on the surface, the pain. You know, it's like I, I've, from that superficial, on that superficial level, I really know the pain. Like I know how it moves you know, I know where the trigger points are. I know what it feels like. I know how to sort of modify it in different ways. But when I take a Dharma perspective, it's like this very, very, very thin veneer of a body that hurts. And then, and that veneer isn't even solid. It's just like, just enough for the screen, the the projector of the mind to project something on it, like, oh, my body hurts again. And beyond that, it's just open space. And then from the point of view like of tuning into the space, it is exactly like Gil was talking about, where like in a moment of that more conventional frame coming into view, it's like, oh, yeah, my body hurts, it's a pain, uh, you know, I'm tired of this. I need a massage or something. 
it's like that whole self-view just forms, but then it can evaporate in a, in a second. And then it's like, but it's not like the pain goes away. That surface or that kind of self-activity is still there. It's just a matter of what, how the mind is understanding it. If the sense of self is congealing around it, then it feels, it really literally feels like there's a person who has a problem. And then when the mind is taking the point of view of wisdom or space or things coming and going, then it's just what it is. It's not, it, it literally in that moment or for a moment is not a problem. And it's really interesting to be in this place of practice where the mind can go from a very clear sense that this is a problem to a very clear sense this isn't a problem. And it really changes, it changes how the mind understands all of those self-conceptions. That it's fabricated. Not that it isn't true, it's a true fabrication or a true construction. And in that world, it's as true as anything, just like a dream. When we're dreaming, you know, it's true. And this construction is also true. But it's a construction. And I think this is a good, you know, um, good place to end and, and just as a fruit and a setup for when to share, which he's going to share, that it's not so much we lose self-identity or what it's like to be a self. You know, I'm guessing that Buddha wasn't some like disconnected person. When someone was miserable, he really got it because he knows how to put that set of clothes on. He just knows it's just a set of clothes like to be the one who's experiencing a lot of loss. It's just that the mind isn't confused by the clothes we wear, by the identifications that arise. They're seen for what they are, you know, like a projection, a construction, a fabrication. So I'll leave it here. Turn it over to Wynne for some reflections. So um, we have just a few minutes. uh, And I was thinking about what Mark was saying about the places in our life that we're afraid to turn to you know, that kind of take a lot of energy to wall off in our consciousness. And instead of maybe going to bed and making a long list, maybe we could just sit for, (laughs) 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 like sit for just a minute or two and just kind of maybe land on one thing, you know, just one thing where we feel like we can touch with our wisdom and our care, maybe something that we're afraid to look at in our life or in our heart or in our mind something that we we feel we can uh, approach with kindness. So let's just do that right now. And we'll take our posture, you know, with our 
upright post of equanimity and clarity and just settling into the heart for a moment and see what emerges from the heart when you ask that question. What needs my attention? And just clear seeing, no judgment, no dictator, no critic. Staying in the body, relaxed. And I'll read the 33 synonyms for Nibbana, which we can feel assured are, it's not a decoration. The unconditioned, the destruction of lust, hate, delusion, the uninclined, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, 
the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the asylum, the refuge, the destination, and the path leading to the destination. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.